Please turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 33 following. The heart of a child is a scroll, a page that is lovely and white, and to it as fleeting years roll come hands with a story to write. Be ever so careful, O hand, write thou with a sanctified pen, thy story shall live in the land for years in the doings of men. It shall echo in circles of light or lead to the death of a soul. Give here but a message of right, for the heart of the child is a scroll. Well, the heart of the child is not white. By nature, children are sinful. They're born with a sinful nature. So Jesus said that we need a new heart. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, adulterous fornications. All these things come from within and defile the man, said Jesus. But nonetheless, we do write on the scroll of the heart. And what we write has a whole lot to do with whether that heart is renewed or whether it goes on its natural bent. An awful lot of things are being written on children's hearts in our society that are anything but helpful. If you think of the music, if you think of the sex education courses that are not taught correctly, the concept of abstention is not there. Uh, if you think of the higher education in our land and uh, its bent. So many things are being written on the hearts of children that contribute to the immorality and the decay and the wrong thinking. Well, Jesus addresses that here and the consequence. The background of this is a dispute between the disciples. In uh, verse 33, he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? And they held their peace, for by the way they disputed among themselves, Who should be greatest? Now, these are the disciples. And here's all this selfish ambition that's in the heart, by nature, coming out even among Jesus' disciples. And they're arguing over which of them shall be greatest in God's kingdom. Jesus gives instruction about true greatness. In verse 35, he sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. If you want to be great, here's how to do it. You serve everyone else. Greatness in my kingdom isn't reckoned by how many serve you but by how many you can serve. Jesus uh, set the example. Uh, at the Last Supper, he rises, he takes off his robe, he girds himself with a towel, takes a basin, and starts to wash the disciples' feet, performing the role of a servant. And then he sits down. He said, do you understand what I've done? I've given you example." You call me Master and Lord. You say, well, so I am. If I, your Master and Lord, have washed your feet, then you ought to wash one another's feet. The servant is not above his master. Now, he is a servant leader. 
He sets the pattern. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. He didn't just lay aside his earthly robe. He laid aside his robes of glory and took not a basin but a cross and went to the cross to wash our souls from our guilt, a servant, master. And uh, he sets the pattern as true greatness, said Jesus. And he speaks of the importance of receiving others. In verse 36, he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. Isn't that a precious picture? Jesus takes a child. Suppose uh, Jesus had been physically present this morning, and of these children who are here, he just walked up and picked up a couple of them in his arms. Well, that's the way he was when he walked the earth. He loved children, and they loved him. What a precious picture. And what an example for us, again, of true greatness. He says, uh, whoever will receive one such child in my name receives me. You want to do something great? You take a little child, and in the name of Jesus Christ, you, you help that child. You help him walk through this world with all of its pitfalls. You help him know about Jesus Christ. You help him understand his own sinful nature and his need of a new heart and the availability of that through commitment to Jesus Christ, surrender to Christ, trust in Christ. And who Christ was, God become man. And what he did and what we must do. And you help that child in many ways. Jesus said, whoever does that kind of thing for my sake, he said, you receive me. And when you receive me, you receive him that sent me. It's a tremendous act. It may seem a small thing. I think of the Sunday school teachers here, or those who work with the children's choirs, or uh, the uh, neighborhood Bible club teachers, and so on. You may think that's the least work. Jesus doesn't think that. As a poem, Dear Lord, I do not ask that thou shouldst give me some high work of thine, some noble calling or some wondrous task. Give me a little hand to hold in mine. Give me a little child to point the way over the strange sweet path that leads to thee. Give me a little voice to teach to pray. Give me two shining eyes thy face to see. The only crown I ask, dear Lord, to wear is this, that I may teach a little child. I do not ask that I may ever stand among the wise, the worthy, or the great. I only ask that softly, hand in hand, a child and I may enter at the gate. Now, that's a tremendous thing when we teach children. He speaks of receiving children, and then he speaks of receiving fellow believers. In uh, verse uh, 38, 
John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out demons in thy name. And he followed not us, and we forbade him because he followed not us. Lord, we saw this man out there casting out demons. And he was doing it in your name. But he wasn't a Presbyterian. And so we told him to stop. And Jesus speaks of the importance of receiving other believers. In uh, verse 39, Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me, for he that is not against us is on our part. Uh, Jesus admonishes them. The fact that this man was able to do a miracle or cast out a demon in Jesus' name through Jesus' power indicated that he was a true believer. And uh, Jesus said, he that's not against us is with us. And uh, you ought to join hands with him and don't forbid him. He's calling for ministry with a tolerant attitude versus narrowness. Think of Paul writing to the church at Corinth and said, you're all divided. One says, I'm of Paul. Another says, I'm of Apollos. Another says, I'm of Peter. Who's Paul? Who's Apollos? I planted Apollos watered. God gave the increase. Now, get your eyes off of men and organizations. Get them on the Lord. And uh, the issue isn't what denomination or even what methodology. The issue is, is Christ being proclaimed? Now, do they belong to Christ? Are they seeking to serve Christ? And you might not do it the way they're doing it, but uh, you pray for them and you, you join hearts with them. Uh, there's a sermon that was preached by Al Freund at Reformed Seminary some years back. He said, if you're not with Christ, then you're not with me. But if you're not with me, you may still be with Christ. Ultimately, in the things that matter... Eternally, if you are for Christ, you cannot be my adversary. Degree of knowledge, sanctification, and reformation, notwithstanding, Christian, I'm to love and accept you. My obligation to love you is not lessened by defects in your theology, character, or practice. Christ doesn't withhold his love from me because of the imperfection of my theology, character, or practice. I must love you because we're brothers in Christ. And the things that separate us culturally, confessionally, racially, nationally, age, degree of spiritual maturity, amount of knowledge, are less important than the things that unite us in Christ. All who are in Christ have God for their Father and are brothers to me. I must love and accept them in their ignorance and error, and they must love and accept me in my pride and prejudice. Whoever has Christ for Lord and Savior, I must not put down or drive off. I'm to welcome little ones in his name. I'm to befriend them, serve them, honor them as brethren. I'm to labor to be at peace with them. Wherein we differ, if I'm unable to persuade them otherwise, the Lord will set them right, us right, at the end. Well, that's the idea that Jesus is advancing here. 
And uh, Jesus says that whoever receives someone else because they belong to him, helps them in any way, will in no wise lose their reward. Verse 41, whoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Well, we see the importance of serving others, the importance of receiving others, children and adults, the importance of not causing others to stumble. Verse 42, And whoever, whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. Offending one of these. Uh, causing them to stumble. This speaks of the rights and privileges that all who follow Christ have, the least of his followers. And whoever leads into error spiritually, either in terms of belief or behavior, one of the least of these his followers, a child or an adult. Jesus said it was better for that person to have a stone like a huge donut put around their neck and that they be cast into the sea. Now just think of all the people in our society who are guilty of that. There's an awful lot in our society causing children to stumble today, isn't it? I mean, it's a business, a big business. Heard the Attorney General this week speak about how a year or so ago a father came to him with a video that was uh, horrible. His junior high son had it. He couldn't figure out how his junior high son got this video full of the most atrocious sexual perversions you could imagine. Began checking around and uh, he'd gotten it at school and there were it's a locker full of them and 30 or 40 kids junior high school swapping them back and forth. Started checking and they taped it off of uh, a satellite that covered the whole nation 24 hours a day with this. Contacted the FCC. FCC wouldn't wouldn't talk about it. Said if you had any complaints, wouldn't tell them. Finally found, uh, the FCC said, talk to so-and-so in Iowa. Talk to this lady and her daughter had gone out to Hollywood, uh, 18 years of age, stayed with a relative, got drawn in by one of these movie-making groups of porn movies, had committed suicide, but now she's on video for the whole world, 40 or so movies like that. Stock in the companies uh, that did all this being sold on Wall Street. High-risk investment. The Attorney General couldn't get the FCC to do anything, so he decided to indict the people who put it up there. 
and uh, General Motors was even involved. They'd put the satellite up. But they didn't realize what was being put on their satellite. And uh, all of a sudden, as indictments began to be passed out in the little state of Alabama, why the whole station, the whole satellite went off the air as this area throughout the whole nation. Now think of all who were part of that. And that that's just one little thing of that type in our nation. This, these people were getting ready to do it all over the world. They'd done it in America, now they wanted to do it all over the world. Well, Jesus said, better for you, if you're involved in any way in corrupting, leading astray, better for you if a millstone were put around your neck. Payday someday. Now, the importance of breaking with sin. Importance not to lead someone else to stumble, but important that I not stumble myself. Not allow anything in my life that's causing me to stumble spiritually. In uh, verse uh, 43, And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Uh, importance of, of uh, not ensnaring yourself by something in your life, something that is dear to you, may be a relationship, may be a practice, may be a habit, may be a business practice, maybe it's lying, uh, whatever it is, you don't pamper it. had a uh, young man and his girl in my office uh, several months ago. Went over the gospel, who Jesus was, what Jesus had done, what's involved in a real commitment. Have you ever made a commitment like that? Have you ever surrendered your will to Jesus Christ? Really? Where are you obeying him? He's your master? No. Would you like to make a commitment like that? No. You believe what I've said is true? Yes. You don't want to make a commitment? No. Why not? Well, there's something in my life that I'm not willing to give up. Hmm. Praise God, they since have done it. But what folly to delay making a commitment when the issues are as they are. The action required, Jesus said, uh, if your hand offends you, cut it off. The need to give up anything that stands between us and the salvation of our souls, no matter how dear. Crucify the flesh and its lusts. Uh, anything that's causing me to be untrue to God has got to be discarded promptly, decisively. Uh, like a doctor cuts off a gangrenous limb to save a life. I've got to deal with myself like that. He gives the reason. It's better to thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. The Greek word for hell is Gehenna, and it means the valley of Hinnom. Outside of Jerusalem, there was this valley. It was sort of a garbage dump. 
Back in Ahaz's day, in the Old Testament, they, they practiced child sacrifice there. And uh, then uh, they threw the bodies of criminals there, and there was a, a fire there always, and it got to be an image of hell as time went on. With these carcasses there, the, bar, the fires. And uh, notice Jesus says, uh, they go into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Uh, the idea of this worm uh, continuing to feed on the carcass. What a terrible picture. Now you say, uh, don't you think that's figurative language? Yes. Yes, I do. I don't believe there are worms in hell. I believe there's something worse. I believe this is a figure of something very real and inconceivably horrible. And this is Jesus speaking. This is not uh, Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. This is Jesus. Jesus, uh, who loves us and who takes the little children in his arms and who loves little children. This is Jesus saying these hard, hard things because he loves us and because it's real. And we're not, we're not being merciful to people to withhold such teaching or preaching. Now, actually, Jonathan Edwards just preached on what Jesus said, in effect, and made it come alive. The uh, English statesman Talleyrand was a notorious liar, and yet he claimed to be a Christian. And, uh, you know, think of some of the politicians in our nation that are like that. Anybody come to mind? Uh, well, uh, a friend said to him one day, he said, uh, how can you claim to be a Christian and at the same time be such a notorious liar? And he said, well, I lie as a statesman, not as a Christian. And he said, well, when the statesman in, is in hell, what's the Christian going to do? Notice the repeated emphasis here in verse 45. If thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than to having two feet be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. The issue is entering into the kingdom of God. And I'd be far better off without whatever this precious thing is that's keeping me out of the kingdom of God. I'd be far better to let it go and into the kingdom than to keep it and be out of the kingdom and wind up in hell. Now, uh, the, the language here indicates that in hell the suffering goes on. Actually, uh, the doctrine of hell is, is receiving something of a revival in our day. There's an article in the uh, U.S. News and World Report, March 25, 91, The Rekindling of Hell. And uh, it said that uh, in our society that uh, hell is undergoing a revival in terms of belief. 
And he says, uh, a modern recovery of hell could well influence thinking on basic issues of faith and morality for years to come. And they, they give the account of a survey here where ages 18 to 29 in our society, 84% believe in heaven and uh, 71% believe in hell. 71%. Uh, 50 years and up, 54% believe in hell. So it's up almost 20%. The younger generation believes in hell. The question is asked, what are your chances of going to hell or heaven? And in the survey, the total of the total, 78% thought their chances of going to heaven were good. What percent do you reckon thought they might go to hell? 4%. What, what would you guess? What percent of the people in America do you think might go to hell? I'd almost want to reverse the two and say 78% may go to hell. If we were to ask those 78% uh, that uh, think their chances of going to heaven are good, why do they think their chances of going to heaven are good? What do you think they would say? I can tell you what they'd say. The great majority of them would say, because I haven't done anything real bad. Well, Unfortunately, from God's perspective, they have. They've broken God's holy law. Have they loved God with all of their heart and all of their mind and all their soul, all their strength, all the time? That's the first and great commandment. They haven't done that. And they're great sinners. We're all great sinners. And there's only one way of going to heaven, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ and surrender. Real surrender, where I cut off the offending member where I, I deal ruthlessly and give up anything that's hindering me from really having a master and really trusting a Savior. Um, as we say in the, uh, in the picture here, it's ongoing suffering. Even in evangelical theology today, you've got some prominent theologians who are waffling on the idea of ongoing suffering in hell. And they would teach annihilationism. Yes, you go to hell, but you just burn up and you no longer suffer. Clark Pinnock, one such theologian, says it like this. How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they've been? Surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God, at least by any ordinary moral standards and by the gospel itself. Well, that's Clark Pinnock. And then you've got Jesus. Now you read what Jesus said, and you decide whether the suffering goes on or whether you're annihilated. As I read it, the suffering goes on. The worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And Jesus talked about those who go into eternal punishment and those who go into eternal life. Uh, Revelation uh, 14:11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Jesus gave the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man in hell lifted up his eyes in torments and said, Father Abraham, 
send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in torment in this place. And uh, Abraham said, we cannot pass to you, you cannot pass to us, there's a great gulf fixed. Jesus teaching the ongoing nature of the suffering. There's a reference to salt in verse 49, For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. In hell, everyone will be salted with fire. We say, well, if there's fire, why don't they burn up? Well, in the Old Testament, you rub salt into the sacrifice. Salt was a preservative. And the idea, as J.A. Alexander, the great commentator on Mark, says, is that they are... This salt preserves them for suffering by being kept in existence for the very purpose of enduring these sufferings. The divine wrath that consumes them will preserve them from annihilation, not from suffering, but for suffering. That's a hard doctrine. But that's what's being said here. C.S. Lewis said, In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is to say, is a question. What do you want God to do? Do you want God to, to uh, wipe out their past sin and, and, and let them start clean and, and forgive them no matter what they've done? Well, he's already done that at Calvary, and they won't be forgiven. They won't accept that forgiveness. Well, what are you asking them to do? To leave them alone? Unfortunately, that's what he does. He lets them alone to the fate that they've chosen. The national anthem in hell is, I did it my way. Well, what we need is preserving from sin, a salt that preserves us from sin, a salt in ourselves, the salt of the Holy Spirit making us new creatures and changing our lives as we've made a genuine surrender to Christ. So he says salt is good, but if the salt have lost its saltness, where will will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. As Alexander says, he must either be salted with the fire of divine wrath and his own eternal torments, or with the renewed salt of divine grace and his own regeneration. Have true grace, have the Spirit of God dwelling within through faith in Christ. And, and giving me a quality of life that's different. And power to live differently. Have salt in yourselves. Well, importance of acting without delay. You know, uh, uh, <laughs> it's so serious. What could be any more solemn? This is most. This is the most solemn passage in the Bible, I believe. It talks about not causing others to stumble and and not. Letting anything keep you from entering the kingdom of God because of the dire consequences. We had a, a young man, 35 years of age, have a heart attack this week. We had a gentleman in good shape, just been out jogging, sitting on the, uh, the hood of his car, fell over dead this week. The importance of acting without delay. The importance of, of being serious of making a genuine commitment to Jesus Christ. Uh, The philosopher Mortimer Adler was asked, why didn't he become a Christian? And 
he did in time. But at that time, he said, you know, he said, uh, it's one thing maybe if you grow up in a Christian home. But he said, I didn't. I didn't. And, and if you make a conscious act of your will to uh, come into the Christian faith, he said, uh, one had better be prepared to live a truly Christian life. So you asked yourself, are you prepared to give up all of your vices and weaknesses of the flesh? That's right. Ask yourself. Don't delay, but when you do it, understand what is involved. I am, I'm, I'm giving up this lifestyle. I'm taking up this lifestyle. I'm receiving a master. He's not asking me to do this in his strength, but he's asking me to surrender my will, and he's going to live in me and give me a different power in my life. And it's going to mean giving up and cutting off. And there's an initial giving up, and then there'll be more and more as I go on walking with him. Be serious. Become a child. Be like a child. Humble. Jesus said, except you humble yourself and become as a little child, you shall in no wise enter in. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, how is it with you? Are you causing someone else to stumble? Tempting them, leading them astray? Are you stumbling yourself? Have you ever entered the kingdom? Do you have a king? Has he changed your life? Have you salt in yourself, the salt of the Spirit of God changing you? Are you prepared in a childlike way to genuinely commit your life to Christ right now if you've never done it? Not delaying and yet dead serious. Pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus, I come as a little child. Lord, anything in my life that is hindering me from following you, I yield it. And I trust you to give me salt, the salt of your spirit, changing my life as a gift right now. Amen.